0: This is the art of dreaming.
1: We think our lives are linear and there's a logical sense to it. We follow the clock time. For me, dreams are circular time.
0: A series telling the human stories behind
2: art. I think we can call it dreaming. I think for me it's experiment is the word that comes to mind, to experiment how far I can push And it's really important to me to not know
0: the outcome. In this episode, artists and thinkers
3: reflect on the way art and dreams meet. And you might see something and not read it, but then maybe the sculpture or a certain shape will come up in your dream and you haven't maybe realised that your brain has actually clocked it.
0: To dream. To entertain the impossible. It's quite strange
2: to be back here without balloons. (laughs) I'm Naomi Lackmeyer. I'm a live artist and performance artist. I'm in St Leonard's Church in Shoreditch in London where I performed one of my performance works, Caraphobia. This idea just came to me of wouldn't it be wonderful to fill this space with balloons and float from them It was entirely unrealistic, but it stuck with me since then as something, the never project, but that is always the exciting thing that will happen at some point in the future. And because it was technically so complicated and so expensive, it was something in my mind that would always remain a theoretical project, a dream, in a sense. And then unlimited funding came around that generated out of the Cultural Olympiad in 2012, and they commissioned the project. So the Never Project became the It Has Happened Project, which is quite strange because when a dream that you never think is going to happen happens, then where are you with afterwards? I almost always make a point out of not using my wheelchair in performances and that that would be an extra challenge, experiment to see how that worked, how that would be perceived by audiences, if the difference would be seen. It started with the space, as you see it here, an Empty Church, with some tables and helium gas bottles lined up at the sides and um, 20 assistants at a time. And I was on a plinth in front of the altar and then a rope bondage expert very elaborately and carefully started to bind me into a rope harness. And some people said it looked like I was strung up as a turkey or it looked a little bit sort of chrysalis-y. And while that was going on, our lovely assistants started inflating the balloons and stringing them into columns of, I think it was about 20,000 balloons in total. And then slowly, slowly, they started attaching the balloons to the harness. Very gradually, over the hours, my vision just filled up with balloons and the church started disappearing. So there was all this sort of tension and excitement. It was very unpredictable if it was going to work or when liftoff was going to happen. We lifted off in about the 36 hour and all this noise, I mean, the most amazing thing during liftoff was it is having 20 helium bottles go at the same time is a very noisy experience. But then as I lifted off, everybody just stopped and this silence fell in the church and everybody was just staring as I was lifting up.
0: Dream to be lost in thought.
1: When I'm daydreaming, it's a moment of suspension, really. I was not very good at sitting in front of a desk when I was a child. So the constant end-of-year parents' letter would be that he daydreams all day long. Then when I became an adult, I started to use a more intellectual word called contemplation to make it sound maturer. But it's still actually daydreaming. My name is Akram Khan. I'm a choreographer and dancer. One particular moment when I came in to the Tate modern, it was actually off chance. I, I didn't know who I was coming to see. or I wasn't coming to see anything specific. And it was a project by Oliver ellison and it was called the weather project and it was like this balloon that was filled with sun light uh, it was a tungsten color it was like emitting rays in the space and it was just amazing because i was standing there and i could feel people lying down and i felt i had to lie down it was physically transforming me and that was where i really daydreamed that was the one moment in Tate modern where i was dreaming a lot and i forgot time literally And then, you know, a few hours later, you realized, oh, oh, my God, you know, it felt like days had gone by. And I came up with a few pieces in my head by that moment. (laughs) It was interesting because that's suggestive. It was by no means direct in its approach. And that's the power of art. Because we see things very linear, see things in terms of lines. But nature is not lines, it's circular. And so you're confronted by this circular feeling because it was a balloon shape. Actually, funnily enough, we think our lives are linear and there's a logical sense to it because we follow the man-made time, which is a Christianized, westernized, masculine time, which is the clock time. For me, dreams are circular time, which is like a spiral time which is suspended time, which is cyclical time, which is life and death time, which is nature time, which is seasonal time, which is the feminine time, which is eastern time, which is ritualistic time. That time is specific to dreams for me. And it's illogical, it's, it doesn't make sense. But life doesn't make sense too, we just think it does.
0: The Scottish writer J.M. Barry said... The moment you doubt whether you can fly, you cease forever to be able to do it. Reminds
2: me, and I think I was thinking of that at the time, not of my image, but of my mum's. And she told me the stories throughout her childhood that she's absolutely convinced. And she said to her, it feels like a memory, even though realistically she knows it's not that she could fly until she learned to tell the time. And she says she remembers how it was like to float sort of uh, two metres above the ground, and that's how she would be moving around. And then some mean adult t- taught her how to tell the time, and it put her on the ground. I mean, there's something that I find so interesting, which I knew beforehand, that there is such a contradiction in the piece, and I love the contradiction about it, this lightness and dreaminess and this childlike image of of floating from balloons. The comments I often get, oh, it must feel so wonderful. And in some ways it did. I mean, lifting off felt very exciting and, and wonderful, but it was also very restrictive and painful. And so the overall experience was a real mixture of the two. By putting it into practice, I think it took away a lot, and that was very intentionally it took away a lot of the loveliness of the dream. Because it's, it's, it's not meant to
0: be, is it? The Sufi poet Rumi said, The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep.
3: It's quite a surreal job to come in and clean them, and especially because the equipment will be like a feather bow and a trolley and a hoover and a handheld hoover, or like a Henry hoover, and then you have to remind yourself that you're here. Um, So I'm Sarah Wynne, and I've been working in the role of an information assistant here at Tate, I also work for the art maintenance team. So we kind of sit alongside the conservation team and we go around a few times in the week in the morning and we effectively clean and maintain the artworks and the exhibitions as well. So this will be simple things from like hoovering behind the barriers. Um, we do a lot of dusting. You'll be surprised at the amount of dust that accumulates, particularly at winter with like the coats and people coming in and taking off coats and scarves. The dust always seems to accumulate in certain corners of the building, so after a while you know where you need to go to get your, like, dust balls. And when nobody else is in the gallery, and we come in in the morning about 8 o'clock, and you're the only person here, and you just develop this kind of close relationship with the work. On the Tube at that time, it's so busy, and I get off at London Bridge, and it's so busy, and even the streets are so busy. And then as you get inside the Tate and you kind of make your way up the top, it's like peace and quiet... Obviously, the walls in this gallery are really white, so it does create quite a peaceful atmosphere, naturally. Um, And the high ceiling, so it creates quite an echoey feeling in the room. But it's so quiet and peaceful being in here. A lot of the time, the really large-scale doors will still be closed, so you have to, like, open them like you're going into, like, a chapel or or something. Yeah, it's quite a sacred time to come in. It's almost like you're waking up the artworks. (laughs) It's like time to get up. (laughs)
1: So um, these are my bells. They're very sacred to me because they're the bells that we tie around our ankles as Indian classical dancers. And when I hear these sounds, they remind me very much of Asia somehow. It kind of conjures something spiritual in me, um, partly because it's a ritual that i wearing the bells every day, knowing that you're going to train and you're going to um, uh, sacrifice yourself in a sense. Because, of course, there's moments where you wake up and you put your bells on at 6 o'clock in the morning and you go, "Oh bloody hell, do you, you could just have a lie-in or you could go and meet a friend for coffee or something like that. And what I do every morning is I go to my studio. Well, I didn't have a studio before, my personal studio. I, I used to use my mum's kitchen. So I would have my bells in the kitchen in one of the drawers and I would go and just wake the bells up. And that would awaken the sense of wanting to go home. The bells are my home. The sounds of the bells are my home because it is the classical Indian dance form, Kathak, that I've trained since I was a child. And everything I create springs from that sound, that place.
0: To dream, to embark on a flight of
3: fancy. So this is Barbara Hepworth's Oval Sculpture Number 2. This is on the west end of the building of Tate Modern. Um, And this is one of the artworks that I will come in and clean and look after in the morning. It's like an object that makes sense but doesn't make sense. A bit like a dream in that way that you can see it and you know what it is. But you don't know what it is. So it's kind of like an egg on the side. Like I don't know if you've ever done that thing where you put an egg in a glass of water to see if it's... If you can use it, and if it floats or doesn't, and it tips over on the sides, but it's got these two also kind of egg-shaped holes which go through it and really reveal the depth to it. From this end, it looks quite concave, like a bean, like a kind of giant butter bean maybe, and it really forces you to, like, to walk around it. And then as you walk around it, you see another hole, which you can't see from the other side. And then on the inside, you see these lovely kind of scratch marks which is almost like someone's like doodling a bit on a notepad, and again on the outside, it's so smooth, it's a bit kind of like ice cream in that it's smooth, but the texture is somehow always changing. The glass box ends up with lots of finger marks on it as well, as it is the kind of work you want to touch and prod and poke. I think you can really see her like the hand marks and hand gestures that have gone into it, and as I'm cleaning the artwork with my hand is like a small reflection of what she's doing in a tiny way like it's you can't help but almost like mirror the shapes like almost like dust the surface in sort of circles it's it's almost like mirroring the circles that I can see I think one of the reason why I really like this work is that she was probably one of the first artists that I knew about or the sort of I have a really strong childhood association with. So when with my family in the summer holidays, we would go down to Cornwall, and then one day we went to St. Ives, and we went to the Tate St. Ives, but also to the Barbara Hepworth Museum and, and Gallery, which is there. And I have such a strong vivid memory of seeing her garden and seeing the sculptures in her garden. Like they're huge, most of them are bronze. I think I was about eight years old at the time. And obviously the sculptures just, like, massively loomed over me, sort of similar to this, in that they have that real organic shape to them, and they have the holes through them. And I remember you can, you know, peer into her studio and see the setup. And she was quite a small person, and yet made these, like, massive sculptures, and she had her tools there, so I can kind of picture her, like, you know, how she might have carved something similar for this shape here. You can smell, like, the beach, the sea and the salt, and then when you walk into her studio... I remember sort of having that kind of plaster smell that was still lingering. When I see this, I might transport it back to St. Ives where I was.
4: Everything I make is to touch.
0: Artist Barbara Hepworth speaking from her studio in St. Ives in 1973.
4: And people usually do, which pleases me. And it's very important to a sculpture not just to go sort of plonk up and look because it changes all the time. To
0: dream. To reflect on something of an unreal beauty, charm or excellence.
5: My name is Michelle Williams-Gamaker. I'm an artist and filmmaker and we're in my studio space that I share at Raven Row in the East End of London. I do remember a primary school trip, I must have been about six, where we were taken to the National Gallery to see Perseus turning Phineas and his followers to stone. And we sat there very eager and I remember I really remember bursting, putting my hand up to be able to talk about the flesh that was being turned to stone because Medusa's stony gaze was transforming as we could see the pink flesh to marble grey and that was such a big moment for me in working out wow these wonderful objects that I'm looking at and it was the same my parents would take me to Pimlico to Tate Britain and I just do remember those moments of looking at these very curious things I didn't know what I was in but I just absolutely fell in love with the magic of what art could do didn't have the words for it and that's really an interesting thing because Here I am as someone who can speak about my relationship with art now. Art objects do something very different to objects in the world that belong to kind of the heart of capitalism. You know, sometimes I think of art objects absolutely participating in a capitalist structure, but they're also... They can run counter to that or they can completely befuddle or confuse a more neoliberal condition that is based on this object has to exist because it needs to do this function in the world. An art object has its own space and time, and that is such a gift. Yeah, I'm probably going to be someone that will over-romanticise an art object, but whenever I cross into a gallery space or a museum, I'm fully aware that I'm accessing a quite different space to... You know, a shop or a street or an office. And I know that I'm being asked to take time with those objects, which is really hard in this day and age to get people to slow down. There's a moment of reflection where the answer isn't a kind of neat Twitter character content moment, or it's not an Instagram post and it's not a quick post on a social media platform. If I go back to my six-year-old self, looking at those art objects, I didn't know what I was looking at. I just knew that I loved it. And that's more than enough for me. I think art saved me. (laughs) I think it really saved me. I'm laughing nervously now, but I think that when I've had to work in the real world, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but it couldn't nourish me in the way that art has... So the reason I speak the way I do is because art did this to me, not just reading books, not just going to different educational spaces, but the objects themselves that I've basically looked at without also having the words for them when I was younger. I, do, I think that's so important to be able to say I don't know how to speak about this thing. And if I could make that a clear message to anyone that's encountering an art object early on in their lives. I think it takes time, and that's why now there's a a stream of words where at the beginning there wasn't as much.
0: The Irish writer Oscar Wilde said, no great artist ever sees things as they really are. If he did he would cease to be an artist.
5: So
4: it's a Thursday, very early in the morning, so we don't have many people around. My name is theoora I'm a visitor assistant. I've been working for Tate for ten years. We walk around the galleries and some people confuse us with guards. But we talk to people and help them to interpret the words. Uh, that's pink tones. I usually just sit next to it. It's a large cube-shaped sculpture made of solid glass. So it's called pink tones because it's pink. <laughs> and it's also because it's very heavy. It's 4.5 tonnes. It has, like, this cloudy kind of frosted sides, but then if you go closer, it's clear on top. So it kind of gives you, like, the sensation like it's like water. Because it's next to this massive window, when the sun goes through the piece, depends where the sun is, the piece changes all the time and it gives, like, a different glow to it. I always sat here thinking about this very hard, solid, glass cube that is also probably very cold and because i was thinking about her history of working in iceland i thought it was like more like an ice cube until a visitor came to me one day it was a 12 year old boy and he said that he looks like a turkish delight <laughs> so since then i just sit here thinking what would it be if it's really a giant Turkish delight. Something where I can bounce on or I can bite it or lick it, you know, poke it and make it wobble. <laughs> and it changed my mind completely. <laughs> Could be meter, yeah, something like a meter, I think. But yeah, it's quite big. I wouldn't be able to eat it all myself, probably I need to ask people to come and help me. <laughs>
0: The English writer Virginia Woolf said, Yet it is in our idleness, in our dreams, that the submerged truth sometimes comes to the top.
1: If you had Stanley Kubrick making a piece with David Lynch with Radiohead playing in the background, that would be my idea, or Bjork, Radiohead more probably, that would be probably where my daydreams are most best at. Yes, it starts from quite um, a skewed, distorted sense of reality. <laughs> but that's the power of art, really, and artists, how they can see the world differently to the way, thank God, to the way politicians do. And I wish politicians would be a bit more artistic because we're in dire need of seeing the world differently right now. So, Xenos is my last full length solo. Performance, but it was a real collective, really, of collaborators. And we were interested in how shell shock played a huge part in people going to war, ending up being soldiers, returning back as people who have nightmares, people who are dreaming, where reality distorts with dreams. And it kind of lent itself to, to my sense of daydreaming anyway, <laughs> There are words, audible words in the show, but primarily it's through the body. Now the body has a way to transform literalness into a kind of ambiguous abstract space. When it's literal, you are being told. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, it's just a very different approach. Politicians speak a language, but they're telling you what to feel. They're telling you what to do. They're telling you what to think. So I didn't want to tell the audience what to feel. I wanted to suggest perhaps a scenario or a collection of scenarios which then they interpret it in their own way. To
0: dream, to aspire,
4: to hope. Making a children's book and publishing one day is a big dream for me. I'm a mom and I work here part-time, so I don't have much time to draw. But I have a few ideas that my children have given me, (laughs) but (laughs) it's still a working process. (laughs) For example, I have one about a boy that is looking for a nice place to read the book. And he sees a cloud that looks very comfy and tries to get to the cloud. I hope I can be as imaginative as children are. It's like their ideas are not limited and they are more free to open their minds and think outside the box. Don't
5: quote me, but I think it's a Georgian house. (laughs) I always get this wrong. We're nine collectives here at Raven Row. It's an initiative for a one-year studio. And when we got this space, we were asked, how many of you have studios? And the answer was we kind of laughed and said, none of us. Because these days, it's not so easy to be an artist in London, to pay rents and to have the luxury of the time that a studio gives you. So potentially there could be texts that are generated, exhibitions that are made. There's a lot of anticipation and dreaming about that, really. All these empty buildings in London, if they could only be given over to the artists, what we might be able to do on a kind of collective and social level, it sounds romantic, or it sound, but it's utterly not. It's actually totally vital.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate, review and subscribe. You can tune in next week when we'll explore the art of protest. Here Scotty and Jeremy Della discuss what art and protest means for them.
1: I am a working-class queer femme who's fat, and so a lot of the protests that are in my work is about queerness, it's about fatness and fat radicalism and changing the rhetoric around fat. For me, the art of protest is the art that's made on them. It's the objects and the banners and the placards and things and the drawings and whatnot. That, for me, is the best... Part of a protest. The Art
0: of Dreaming was produced by Sarah Cudden and Alia Kassam. It was a Falling Tree production for Tate, with music from Camilo Tirado and the Cabinet of Living Cinema. The reader was me, Talisa Teixeira, with special thanks to all our contributors. To find out more about Tate podcasts, visit Tate.org.uk. Forward slash podcasts, or subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Acast.